one book I talk about quite a bit in Wundo uh, Reality is is the whole Freakonomics phenomenon, where or this very prominent economist from the University of Chicago largely assumed that he had sort of a universal explanation of human behavior. That was the premise of Freakonomics. Is I can take this and apply it to everything: crime, relationships, sumo wrestling. All kinds of things. Now, of course, professional economists often sort of looked over at Stephen Levitt and thought, "You're way out of bounds here." But to me, it's, to me as a hermeneuticist, that sort of vulgarization is an important effect of naturalism that naturalism itself can't account for. Hello, and welcome to the Particular Good Podcast. We're coming to you from St. Bernard School of Theology and Ministry in Rochester, New York, with additional campuses in Buffalo, Syracuse, and Albany. Today, we're talking with Jason Blakely, Associate Professor of Political Science at Pepperdine University, about his 2020 book, We Built Reality, How Social Science Infiltrated Culture, Politics, and Power. In We Built Reality, Jason talks about how pseudoscience and scientific authority shapes the way we view ourselves, our economic realities, our political institutions, and criminality, among other things. I talk with Jason about naturalism, interpretive social science, integralism, and more. Here's Jason. Throughout your work, a consistent theme is the use of interpretive social theory, which you distinguish from naturalism. How has uh, naturalism influenced sociology? Well, naturalism is a diffuse worldview. You might think of it as a kind of general outlook. So it's it's not it's not creedal in the sense that people don't sign up for it. They don't necessarily always know that they're naturalists. It's a diffuse cultural movement that emerges with the natural science revolution. Mm -hmm. And it's most loosely what it holds is that the study of human beings should be modeled on the natural sciences. And and it it comes out of a a rightful sort of uh, fascination and admiration for the natural science revolution. But as a diffuse kind of cultural movement, it can take on many, many forms. And the problems come in when you start to try to apply these concepts and and theories to the study of human behavior. And so the influence on sociology in particular can take a lot of different variants. Uh, And no one sociological paradigm has all the features necessarily of naturalism. It's it's more what, um, you know, Ludwig Wittgenstein referred to as sort of family resemblances, where you don't necessarily have all of the features in in one case. But so that having been said, with those caveats having been said, there are uh, recurrent philosophical patterns that tend to define naturalism. Um, For instance, oftentimes the desire to try to make the human sciences look like the natural sciences involves a certain conception of explanation. So naturalists, when they study human beings, often are looking for law-like predictive explanations. Oftentimes in contemporary social science, that'll mean things like variable inference. So they'll, they'll look for a variable and then they'll try to correlate it with another variable and then they'll try to make a causal inference from it. And so what you get is a sort of way of explaining human behavior that's impersonal. I explain people's particular actions through variables, which is not what we tend to do in our everyday life. Now, it's thought that by doing this, you're becoming more scientific, uh, but the form of explanation is mechanistic and is modeled on on the natural sciences, where you assume that if a variable occurs, then you can predict 
that another variable will follow subsequent. Yeah, can you, um, can you what's yeah, an example well, of a variable uh, like this? Well, just to pick a, one that you often hear uh, trotted out in, in the popular sort of media is, is brute demographic facts about people. Mm -hmm. So I think there are often naturalist mystifications around brute demographic facts like woman or man, black, white, where we assume that there's some kind of uh, explanatory work that those do when they don't, yeah. you know, that the, the woman vote, well, you know, Ivanka Trump is a woman and so, so is Gloria Steinem. So what are you going to do about that fact? I mean, the, the brute fact doesn't um, carry explanatory content. Mm. Naturalists tend to then try to fudge the issue, I think, philosophically by, by making some claim about statistical propensity. Women will tend to, mm -hmm. right? Um, these, these variables will tend to correlate, like uh, women will tend to vote, I don't know, I'll fill one in just for the sake of discussion, like we'll tend to vote Democrat mm -hmm. or we'll tend to vote for a progressive or, or a platform that somehow reflects feminist um, principles. And so if you find if you find some counter evidence to that, naturalists will tend to try to say, well, statistically, there's a correlation here. Right. Uh, but the form of explanation is one that's modeled on the natural sciences. It's not um, it's not narrative, which is the approach I prefer. It's not interpretive. Yeah. 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 And th this um, and I know you've got more points on how this breaks down, but on this variable question and the way we use it for politics, would this be what we see with the polling, the ubiquity of polling leading up to a national presidential election? And is it um, part of the, the problem there that we are talking about uh, very tight sort of numbers and they're interpreted as huge probabilities? Or is there just something fundamentally uh, awry with that kind of approach? Well, it depends what part of polling. I kind of have a complicated position on this. Part of polling I'm perfectly fine with as a method, which is just um, trying to provide complex, educated, highly educated, sophisticated statistical guesswork about uh, what a population looks like along any number of qualities. So, you know, for instance, how they're going to vote. You sample and you don't you don't survey every single person in a population. Right. That would require practically that would require reproducing the vote itself. So there's something very valuable in in polling. Where I think polling goes awry uh, uh, to, is well, at least two ways. One is when it gets into election forecasting, mm -hmm. and election forecasting often looks more like what I was just criticizing, where there's a tendency to variableize, mm -hmm. often in really complicated ways, but in order to build a model that predicts uh, what people are going to do. Mm -hmm. As opposed to presenting, I think the more intellectually defensible way to present polling is, is more what I just said, which is uh, a sophisticated form of guesswork that gives you a snapshot. It gives you a synchronic picture of what's going yeah. on um, in a given population. And a lot of the ele election forecasters who are sort of popular wonks and social scientific types often overblow their cl uh, claims and sort of say, well, you know, I, I have a kind of predictive knowledge about how people are going to behave. And I think that's problematic because I don't think these mechanistic explanations of human behavior work. And that's why I think that the polling and, and the, the forecasting, I should say, in 2016, 2020 were partly disappointing is because it had it slid into this kind of naturalist form. The other problem with 
with um, with polling is that people treat it not as educated guesswork, but as and I don't think the experts do this per se usually, but a lot of the population tends to treat it as um, sort of a set outcome. Right when in fact the polling is occurring inside the political process. And so there can be a very complicated relationship between a population reading polls and how they interpret the polls in terms of what they're going to do. Are they going to go out and vote in the middle of a pandemic? Uh, do they feel like their person really has it um, sealed off for victory? Things like that. So often we tend to think of the polling as existing outside the political process. And I think that's a mistake. That also comes from naturalism. It comes from the notion in the natural sciences, our descriptions don't affect or restructure the object of study. Right. Whereas in the human sciences, the description can very much enter into and interact with and and change the object of study. Very good. So you've mentioned in a couple of features of naturalism, this focus on variables, and then this next one, standing outside the, the object of study. Are, are there more you were going to uh, mention before I <laughs> went off into polls? Yeah, no, and I'm glad you stopped me because, I mean, really, it's it's such a diffuse and widespread worldview that one could continue enumerating possibly, you know, forever about all the different types of features and creative forms it's taken because so many research programs have been based on this diffuse worldview. But explanation is a big recurrent family resemblance. Neglect of meaning, since you just mentioned, uh, you know, the, this point I made about the word object relationship is different in the social sciences. In in the natural sciences, the word, the description, the theory doesn't affect the object yeah. per se, unless you go out and then do something to it in a sort of engineering sense. But it, there's a neglect of meanings oftentimes by naturalists. Um, but there, there are other issues involved with the neglect of meanings in naturalism. Oftentimes naturalists will uh, not be very historically conscious. They won't have cultural literacy. So to go back to my sort of simplified example of variableization and mechanistic explanation if i just say woman and then i expect certain beliefs to follow i might really be neglecting the cultures within which those people live right. and the culture that ivanka trump comes out of or that a muslim immigrant woman comes out of or a little sister comes out of or uh, chelsea clinton comes out of those are very different cultures and to try to start explaining with just the thinness of the description woman can often be sort of a mystification. And what ends up happening is naturalists are often, to put it harshly, very shallow in terms of their cultural and historical knowledge of what's actually happening with people and why they're acting. I, I could go on. I mean, there are many more, yeah. but um, maybe I should say one more, which is just authority. Um, naturalism tends to create a kind of authority, which is technocratic. Yeah where there are certain people who say they have a science of society and that they can, um, they're entitled to rational policymaking because they have this science of society. Whereas the approach I prefer, which is interpretive or hermeneutic, tends to think that the human sciences are an art of interpretation. And so you need this kind of humanistic understanding um, in order to explain people's actions. You need to understand their beliefs and meanings, the cultures they come out of. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And it isn't quite as easily commodified and uh, turned into a sort of a set of expert skills that you can sell to the White House or to the market. 
as uh, explaining society. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I think one of the reasons there is sort of a tight fit between a certain version of consumer culture and technocratic expertise. If you look at the way the elections are covered, they're covered in a very gamified way. And it's, you know, to have someone instead for a long form interview who can tell you about uh, what women in Akron, Ohio are experiencing in their different subcultures doesn't have the gamified feel to yeah. it it doesn't it's not as easily commodified as you click on the television and you see all these maps and this um you know sort of polling going on in these wonks telling you about the different demographic categories and where the points are at for everyone right. so i think you're right that there's a tight fit uh Naturalism doesn't, it can take so many forms that, you know, I think it's present in things like Soviet Stalinism too. So it doesn't have to only have allied itself with um, commodified mass consumer capitalism. But in our society, that is a very frequent, frequent form that it takes. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. So uh, by contrast, what you've, you've touched on this, but what is uh, interpretive social science and why do you think it's a better course? Interpretive social science has roots in something called hermeneutic philosophy. Hermeneutic philosophy is the interpretation of texts initially. Mm -hmm. It's the notion that there's an art to understanding and particularly biblical texts. Yeah. But then it was brought into uh, the, the, the need to ha develop an art, a set of heuristics and practices for understanding texts more generally. Hermeneutic philosophy through people like Martin Heidegger and Hans-Georg Gadamer was universalized to include human agency. Mm. So they had this insight that human action and behavior is a text analog. Mm. It embodies certain meanings. And so the very um, tools, heuristics, knowledge, cultural literacy, historical consciousness that you need to explain texts, you also need to explain human um, society and human action. And that generally is what interpretive social science comes out of. There are a lot of practicing interpretive social scientists in the United States and in the world. It's a minority position because naturalism is so culturally dominant and intellectually dominant. But there are many, many very accomplished uh, interpretive social scientists yeah. in, across the human sciences, in psychology departments, in sociology departments, political science, and so on. They tend to emphasize narrative instead of this mechanistic form of explanation I was talking yeah. about. Um, interpretive social scientists often insist that if you really want to explain why a group of people or an individual or a whole society did something, the variables aren't explaining anything. You're going to need some story that captures meanings, beliefs, reasons why people acted and that fill in the cultural story. Why does to keep going back to my example, why does Ivanka Trump think the way she does versus uh, the way that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez thinks? Right. You need a cultural story there. The, the category, the demographic category woman is too thin, and it's not really explaining much of anything at that point. It might be giving you some valid descriptions. So uh, interpretive social science is an actual successful theory of human agency, I would claim. I mean, that would require a lot more argument, but... I think human beings are teleological, purposive, narrative beings, and naturalism is neglecting that fact and is kind of lining up mechanistic explanations. Uh, sometimes it's not demographic. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, I go into this in We Built Reality. It's things like chemicals in the brain, but it's an impersonal 
causal mechanistic form, or it's a form that's idealized and neglects human meanings like rational choice theory or something like this. Um, whereas interpretive social scientists are resting on a more defensible philosophy of action, one that um, takes into account purposiveness, reasons, beliefs of particular agents as constitutive of what they're doing and how they're behaving. Yeah. I'm curious about these terms. So teleological um, and propulsive and narrative, you said. Um, how? What are these three descriptors of human agency and how do they play out in interpretive social science? So... They, in some ways, they go back to Aristotelianism mm -hmm. and the notion that human human behavior is characterized by goal-directedness. Teleology, telos, the etymology, they means goal-directed. Mm -hmm. uh, purposive and narrative are, are variants on the teleological thesis that human beings, their actions are directed towards some goal, and there's a tendency toward that goal uh, when, when they're behaving. And so... To take an example, uh, you know, if you see someone who is gardening, this is an example that I believe Alistair McIntyre uses in an essay. If you see someone who is gardening and they're carrying out what looks like a teleological task, right? They have a goal. They're trying to, I don't know, water sunflowers or something mm -hmm. like that. You still don't really know what they're doing until you start to grapple with some of their aims and meanings on their own terms. So is the person you're seeing gardening trying to win a prize uh, to gain honor in the local uh, gardening or farmer's market competition? Mm -hmm. Are they trying to get a little bit of exercise because their doctor said be outside and be in the sun? Are they trying to get revenge on their wife who hates when they garden? <laughs> you don't really know yeah. <laughs> unless you engage with their meanings. And if you just try for outside descriptions, you might get it um, badly wrong. And so the, the, the notion of a human action unlike just a physical movement. So this is a philosophical distinction here that's very important. In a physical movement, it might be that an exterior explanation is enough. You know, if, if the doctor hits my knee with a mallet and, and the, the knee goes up, we could have an explanation that doesn't require teleology purpose narrative in order to grasp what's happening. You know, we, we would need a, a physiologist to tell us why the knee goes up and, you know, what the mechanics of that mm -hmm. are. But in my example of gardening, uh, we need to engage the purposes, beliefs, meanings, reasons for why that person is acting, or we're not going to understand what they're doing. And if you start moving across cultures, the mystifications really get big. The misunderstandings really get big about why the person is gardening, so to speak. Mm -hmm. This reminds me, um, to some extent, of cultural anthropology, right? So, um, and I'm familiar with this method a little bit more than I am with uh, interpretive social science. I understand anthropology is a interpretive social science, but uh, if, if you're looking at Clifford Geertz off talking to a bunch of informants and taking their their perspective as much as he can, um, as informing his description of what's going on in that group of people that he's studying. Uh, then he puts this all together, you know, humans are um, in a web of their own meaning um, and tries to describe it with his sort of symbolic uh, method. 
Is this similar to what you as a sociologist would do uh, in practice? How does the interpretive social science work for a sociologist who's, I would think, trying to describe broader cultural phenomena than the gardener in the garden? Yeah. Clifford Gertz is hugely important to the interpretive turn and to hermeneutics in the human sciences and his notions of thick description, his many ethnographies. And in that sense, I'm, I'm not very attached to the disciplinary boundaries that we happen to have in the human sciences mm. today, because I think they're interpretive across the board. And you might, you know, focus on different questions. Uh, so you might focus on you know, in something roughly called economy, you might want to focus on um, the material acquisition of, you know, wealth and technology and whatnot. Um, and in something called psychology, you might want to focus on questions that center roughly around something called mental well-being or something of that nature. Um, but I, I basically think that the hermeneutic or interpretive turn, this this set of um, insights into the explanation of human action should just apply across the board and that th therefore the human sciences should be far more porous. So everyone should be doing something a little more similar to what Cl Clifford Gertz uh, was doing. Mm -hmm. Given that I'm slightly overstating that because I don't think everyone has to be an ethnographer, mm -hmm. uh, though I do think you have to grapple with what he calls local local knowledge, um, you know, in, in your paraphrase of him, that wonderful image of, you know, people are sort of suspended in webs of meaning. Yep. Um, everyone needs to grapple, everyone who wants to study human behavior or explain it or grasp it needs to, needs to grapple with, with that central Gertzian insight that human beings are cultural beings that exist in webs of meaning. Um, now, that might look different depending on what question you have. If you're trying to not explain just the gardener um, but something as big as, um, you know, the shift in ideology of an entire society, then the level of description and the meanings you'll be grappling with might be very different, right? You might not be going to the granular, granular level of a single individual, though you might need to tack back and forth between particular individuals, but you could start describing things like traditions mm. And practices more broadly. Why does someone wear a "Make America Great Again" hat? Mm -hmm. uh, why does someone wear a Bernie Sanders, you know, "Feel the Burn" T-shirt? Um, you might start to look at the practice more broadly that people are engaging in, or traditions like social democracy or authoritarianism or whatever it is that you're going to look to to try to explain the broader meanings. So there are different levels of description, and for listeners who are interested in in these many, many, many questions that emerge out of this. I have a 2018 book with co-author Mark Beaver from UC Berkeley called Interpretive Social Science, where we try to set down all the conceptual nuts and bolts for how to carry out um, interpretive social science in this respect. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you. And you've uh, that book looks fascinating. I have not read it, um, and I'm looking forward to reading it. Uh, the book I did read... Um, which intrigued me and uh, I enjoyed very much. And the reason I wanted to talk to you uh, today was your 2020 book, We Built Reality. And in this book, you're bringing together some of these themes we've been talking about, the problem with naturalism and the ubiquity of, nat of naturalism, not only in the social sciences, but in the popular narratives that people like me, who are not social scientists, 
have about ourselves and the world around us. Um, can you share an example or two of the social science narratives that have shaped how we understand ourselves? Yeah, and actually, I think it's important to flag before I give a couple examples that I've been emphasizing that interpretive social science is just better at the level of ex explanation, concept formation, methodological approach. But it should be said that interpretivists like myself also think that the interpretive approach is ethically superior. Yeah, because it it treats human it treats human beings as humans mm. as opposed to as natural science type objects that are mute or brute objects. Right. In other words, hermeneutics thinks of human beings as creative agents whose meanings have to be taken seriously, mm. not necessarily at face value. That's a more complicated question, but that you have to at least start with the Gertzian move that you were talking right. about, where you place them in webs of meaning and so on. And a lot of what I do when we build reality is emphasize the way that supposed descriptions in the social sciences in the last 50 years have actually been involved in ethical and ideological world making that this way this naturalist way of looking at and explaining reality hasn't just been outside looking in on society but has actually helped build society that's why the title we build reality and the big example i open with there are many many examples in the book but the big one i open with in the first two chapters is homo economicus or this notion of human beings as in their anthropology is essentially market actors mm. that are trying to uh, preference maximize. They're trying to always sort of order and maximize their interests and preferences. This shows this homo economicus conception has some very deep and complicated technical roots in neoclassical economics, rational choice theory and whatnot. But the person on the street has been influenced by this in their self understandings if you think of adages that float, at least since the Reagan revolution, very widely within society, for instance, that government is always inefficient and that the private sector is always efficient, that has roots in a certain conception of human agency yeah. in which you think of human beings as market actors and you think of government spaces as not properly aligned to incentivize them to work hard. So the assumption there is civil servants, statespeople, they can't be trusted to do their jobs because those aren't free market spaces. And so they might, you know, sort of live off government fat or largesse instead of assuming that maybe they're patriotic or they have a sort of certain virtue characteristics that make them good public servants. You say, no, 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 everyone's a self-interested homo economicus. So I know that government actors are always going to be inefficient and work on largesse, whereas people in the private sector are going to be under the disciplines of a free market and the, the the pressures of supply and demand and whatnot. And so they're really going to do their job efficiently. And so we should start contracting everything right. out. We should contract out um, welfare programs. We should contract out the military. And that contracting out is justified by this vision of human beings as, as homo economicus. So this has this massive effect I talk about in the book. I call it the market polis, where it's changed everything from how we perceive government to how we perceive our personal and family lives. I call these in the book double H effects, which stands for double hermeneutic effects. And the point there is one that I've already made, which is that in the social sciences, the dis descriptions can actually enter into and change the life world. They can world make, they can open up new worlds of meaning. And so homo economicus is, it, I try to argue in the book anyway, this massive 
double H effect, where supposed set of descriptions that comes out of neoclassical economics becomes kind of a widespread popularized movement and self-understanding that actually changes our institutions, our practices, our ways of talking about politics, economy, family, et cetera. Mm I, I could give another example, but I don't know if that was. That's a great one. That's a great one um, because it's yeah, um, it it plays into this idea too of rational choice theory, which is something that I wanted to talk to you about. Where we are all on the market, we all have to behave as uh, rational market animals, and that's how we then perceive ourselves and others. You're talking about this in the political sphere, but you also talk about in, throughout the book this um, and in, a, in a, a scholarly article you've just written about rational choice theory and how it influences our view of human agency in a, in a non-ethical kind of a way. You propose sort of changing the theory. Now, as I understood it, not rejecting rational choice theory entirely, but changing it to a more interpretive method. Um, can you explain what rational choice theory is and then what, how you would change it? Sure. Yeah. So rational choice theory is an idealized theory of, of human agency. It's not descriptive. It rests on certain a priori axioms. So before the fact, um, rational choice theory, theory posits that human beings will act in a certain way. And these, there are a lot of these axioms that set up rational choice, but the two most important ones are completeness and transitivity. Mm. So the completeness maxim holds that all, all rational agents um, can rank their goods the way you'd kind of rank the goods you want at a grocery store if you say you were on a fixed income and you had the thing you most wanted, second most wanted, third most wanted, fourth most wanted. Rational choice theory assumes that all human action is ordered around that kind of preference hierarchy. There can be ties for rational choice theorists, but they assume that insofar an agent is rational, they can they have um, complete preferences. Transitivity is the assumption that those goods are are transferable or non-circular. Mm -hmm. So someone who prefers, say there's someone who prefers country music to rock music and rock music to classical music, it will also hold that they prefer music to classical music ah. if insofar as they are a rational agent right. so what you get is this set of assumptions about a model if you like about what human beings are or what at least rational agents are and neoclassical economics which is the dominant form of economics today though it's received a very um, sharp challenge from behavioral economics um, in the last few decades but Neoclassical economics just assumes that this is the kind of self you are. Now, if you think about that uh, as, as a political theorist, which is what I am, like if you think about the assumption, for instance, that all goods can be ranked. Yeah. <laughs> in politics, we often encounter goods that we really would struggle to rank. Yeah. Like, do I prefer freedom or health, which is a big one that's like <laughs> yeah. people are justice, racial justice or, um, you know, health. Uh, do I prefer in my allegiances, um, my my commitment to my family member I grew up with, but now I don't see eye to eye with and religion or my religious commitments? You know, sometimes those can feel like they come into conflict and it's not really clear. A parent whose child converts into a religion they don't care for. There can be really sharp, confusing 
um, rival goods in political and social life. Right. And economic rational choice theory just assumes that there are no such goods. And if there are that that you're not rational, you're not acting rationally at that point. If, if you have infinitely demanding goods, uh, to be more philosophically specific, the term is incommensurable. If you have goods that can't be they can't be ranked because they're infinitely demanding. Um, then uh, uh, rational choice has excluded those outside of its theory. Mm-hmm. So essentially you could think of it. Uh, the reason I think it's appealed so much to economists, even though it's appeared across the human sciences and even in disciplines like biology. Um, I think the reason it's appealed so much to economists is that roughly can look plausible to economists because they're dealing with commodities right. where we repeatedly do rank and order our goods at this way. I mean, I do have a wish list of books that don't feel the way that the incommensurable, infinitely demanding goods I was just describing feel, you know, it's like, yes, right. I would prefer to have the new Charles Taylor book, you know, over the, the other book that I was looking at. Yeah. So, so, um, now, so you might think from that sort of analysis I'm presenting, which seems to imply that rational choice theory is false as a description of us. And there, the, this is indeed a challenge that rational choices receive from many sides. I mean, behavioral economists have also pointed out that human beings just don't have, for instance, transitive, um, non-circular preferences. Just as a fact about us, psychologically, we don't reason right. in that way. So mm-hmm. this is really weird if you think about it, because... Um, neoclassical economics is premised on a false description of human beings or if you like get an idealized one now economists tend to fudge it by saying well statistically there will be a propensity toward acting in this way and you'll have things like supply and demand curves and different laws of economics obtaining um but it's already very strange to say that you have a, a human science based on false descriptions and people rallied around uh, Milton Friedman's defense when he he basically accepted that they were false dis- or idealized descriptions not not real descriptions of human behavior and then he said well they're predictive descriptions hmm. but then it looks like the empirical work we've done on on neoclassical economics shows that in fact it's not they don't have predictive knowledge right. and that economists are very bad at predicting um, what's going to happen next and so what exactly is the status of rational choice theory in my ideal uh, social science, which would take an interpretive turn, you wouldn't actually throw rational choice completely in the trash bin, but it would be seriously humbled as a method because then <laughs> what you would basically be dealing with is a thought experiment, in my view, mm-hmm. or what, what Mark and I call a heuristic. So right. just sort of a helpful way to generate some information about the social world. So. Um, you know, th- some theorists have suggested that rational choice is better thought of as an as if situation. You can pretend as if it's true and then maybe there's some valuable insights. What what if everyone acted in this self-interested way? Uh, would it present certain problems for collective goods? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I basically think that rational choice should be radically decentered in all the human sciences and especially in economics in and that economists should be using rational choice, but much more sparingly with a recognition that they're not either describing or predicting or explaining anything that's going on in the social world. What they're doing is building very sophisticated thought ex- as if thought experiments. And if, if it were humbled or decentered in that way, I think economists would need to turn to other 
methods from the social sciences to supplement and and bring in the meaning making dimensions they would want to have economic ethnographies economic histories economic um, cultural accounts uh, so that their models would would be a lot less important uh, a feature of of economics as a discipline for example right that's that makes a lot of sense to me um i i mentioned um i i when I was at the University of Chicago, of course, rational choice theory and, and economic theory in general was sort of king, uh, especially in the college. And I worked with a lot of college students who uh, learned these things, and I'm sure a very sophisticated way, but took home the point in an ethical world-building way of mm -hmm. um, their own self-understanding. Like, um, I can't, I can't truly do something unselfish, so... I know that even if I'm going to go down here and help out uh, serving some food at a homeless shelter for Thanksgiving, that I'm doing that to satisfy my own sense of self. So I need to be realist about that. That always troubled me as a you know um, person who cared for them <laughs> to watch <laughs> them think of themselves that way. <laughs> so um, I'm curious if you could say a little bit about how rational choice theory has uh, shaped uh, world building like you talk about in uh, We Built Reality. Yeah, that's one of these double H effects that I was talking about, double hermeneutic effects, where a description here, a highly idealized description, actually does enter into and change people's self-understandings. Um, I cite an excellent interpretive psychologist who I have a huge admiration for, Philip Cushman is his name. He wrote some clinical studies that were um, widely discussed in the 1990s and early 2000s about how he was seeing people uh, exhibit what he called an empty self in his psychological practice. And he said the empty self was a kind of highly marketized self that thought of everything in this manner. Everything is rankable, transferable, people, relationships. And these people were suffering um, massive depressive episodes anxiety. Um, he said the empty self was a kind of ethical self that uh, had a conception of, of happiness or, if you like, the good life that involved celebrity as sort of paragons and consumption as the main sort of path to the good mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. And so psychologists have been warning about, interpretive psychologists have been warning about the way that this kind of diffuse culture. Now, most economists, to be fair to them, they don't, they tend to hedge their bets quite carefully. They'll say it's a model. They'll right. say it's not a factual description. But oftentimes there is something um, that sort of slides, if you like, into the self-understandings culturally. And, and even many professional economists, even though they'll tell you it's just a model, et cetera, et cetera, sometimes you'll hear them talking more like it's an anthropological descriptive claim about us. Right. If I think a book I talk about quite a bit in, in uh, We Build Reality is, is the whole Freakonomics phenomenon, where mm -hmm. these very prominent economists, or this very prominent economist from the University of Chicago, largely assumed that he had sort of a universal explanation of human behavior. That was the premise of Freakonomics is I can take this and apply it to everything, crime, relationships, sumo wrestling, all kinds of things. Yeah. And so even now, of course, professional economists often sort of looked over at Stephen Levitt and thought, you're way out of bounds here. <laughs> but to me, it's to me as a hermeneuticist, that sort of vulgarization 
is an important effect of naturalism that naturalism itself can't account for. I think naturalists tend to look at that and just think, look, someone is, is sort of abusing the models. I look at that and think, as a hermeneuticist, see the way that supposedly descriptive or explanatory or predictive theories in the social sciences have these meaning-making dimensions that people can't come to terms with. And so then they can't connect the dots um, between psychology and economics in the way that someone like Philip Cushman can do for us. He can point yeah. out, hey, look, this, this, this um, account of human life is actually being embodied as a kind of self. It's, it's becoming a kind of person that, that we encounter. Yeah. Very interesting. This is, uh, and we built reality. You talk about how the behavioral sciences have shaped our view of crime and punishment. And more importantly, uh, our view of criminals, which leads to systematic racialized violence, as we've been seeing, um, pro prominently in our press and, and things that have happened with, police brutality against um, African-Americans for some time. How do you see this happening? Um, how is naturalism sort of leading to these kinds of things? Yeah, well, I tend to think that actually one of the biggest drivers and justifications for racism in the modern sense is naturalism. Hmm. The book opens with the example of Carl Linnaeus, the, the famous um, botanist who gave us the binomial system of description for classifying all the species, you know, of life on the planet. He, a lot of people don't, you know, ordinary people don't realize that he also is one of the founders of sort of a naturalist racial theory where he assumed that there were subnatural types below Homo sapien. Mm -hmm. um, I think he said there were four subtypes, uh, white, European, um, black, African, Asiatic and indigenous or something like this. Yeah. And the way he, he the way he described those classifications was with extremely sort of loaded um, ethical, political, historical terms like lazy and avaricious. I think he applied to to the African subtype of human and uh, I think like inventive and, you know, something like this inventive and industrious to the European white subtype. And so you had these classifications these supposed descriptions of just uh of just biological science that in fact were used to make worlds and to even create and construct the notion uh, of of racialized concepts so there are other sources of racial thinking um like theology different ideologies and whatnot but i think the biggest sort of intellectual driver is actually a pseudoscientific naturalism where descriptive claims cross over. Much more recently in the book, I discuss different social scientific theories that have um, helped create the sort of racial hierarchy that exists in our society. These have become far more subtle than Linnaeus, even if they are sort of Linnaeus's children, in my view. Mm -hmm. uh, I talk quite a bit about uh, James Q. Wilson, a political scientist uh, from actually from Pepperdine, like myself, yeah. and also from, I think he was at Harvard. And he's most famous for the broken windows theory of, of policing, which holds that crime it has a mechanistic explanation that that minor crime is highly correlated maybe even a causal inference is possible um but highly correlated with 
with major crimes. So broken windows is the metaphor. If you let there be broken windows in a, in a neighborhood, um, you know, this can lead to rape and, and, uh, and armed theft, assault, murder, all these other things going up. And so the, the claim he made was that socially science, social scientific, um, knowledge meant that policing had if policing cracked down on the on the minor broken windows on vandalism on turnstile jumping on things like this that you would also be um tamping down on these more brutal forms of crime where does race come in here well well i have a, a quite a few examples in the chapter of what you could think of as sort of colorblind racial concepts and in this case, disorder, how is disorder operationalized? Whose disorder counts as leading to these sort of um, extremely violent ends, right? Mm-hmm. So it, an easy example of this is turnstile jumping to get on the subway in New York. That's a poor person's crime. Right. They jump the turnstile. You know, wealthier people don't feel any need or pressure to do that. Um you can clamp really hard down on turnstile jumping or Eric Garner selling Lucy cigarettes. You can clamp really hard on that. Now the state loses a lot less money from the selling of Lucy cigarettes from turnstile jumping than it does from tax evasion. Right. But tax evasion from, which tends to be a wealthy white collar crime is not policed the way that turnstile jumping and uh, Lucy cigarettes are. So in the United States, if, if you mute the way that naturalists tend to do the cultural context, the history, um, you end up with this very naive, supposedly just empirical description, disorder, broken windows. And what you lose is the way that it gets operationalized within society in which when it's actually policed and turned into a pra- set of practices, what you have is certain people look really disordered in what they're doing and other people don't, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. E- even though in the case of economic crime, you know, the magnitude of cost to society is much larger in one case than in the other. And then if I can just quickly say there are also in the chapter, a lot of explicitly racialized concepts. Um, James Q. Wilson went on to write a book with, um, I think it was Richard Hernstein who's infamous for having later then gone on to write the bell curve with Charles Murray. But um, before that, James Q. Wilson and Hernstein wrote this book called crime and human nature in which they, they had openly, I would argue openly racist concepts. They, they presented them as just merely empirical descriptions, but what they did, there's an entire chapter devoted to race in crime and human nature, where they argue that you can, use the the markers on someone's body like being black or being asian or being white to correlate statistically with certain criminal propensities right uh, they they use iq for instance they say oh people with low iqs don't have the stick to itness um aggressivity things like this and so they never come out and say blacks are natural born criminals no they don't say that what they say is oh look being black correlates with low IQ, no cultural critique there of IQ tests, right. zero, <laughs> zero. just taken at face value. Yeah, it's data. Uh, it, it cor- <laughs> exactly. It's just data. It's just the, just the facts correlated with um, antisocial behavior. So then the claim, it's very subtle. The claim is, oh, well, blacks aren't natural born criminals, but 
by the way, statistically, it tends to correlate with it. And so what you get out of this, I argue in the book, is a, a, a defense of sort of incapacitation theories of policing and racial profiling, where you have this notion of a predator. In, in, in the vulgarized version of this, you know, Hernstein and Wilson don't use language like this. But what's the notion of a predator that everyone from Joe Biden to, you know, the far right used in, in the 90s and early 2000s? It's the notion of someone biological, etc., that they're a danger to society and they need to be taken out by a highly militarized police force. Yeah. And that to me looks a lot closer to, um, it's not a colorblind concept, it's a form of reading bodies, if you like, where you read bodies for statistical propensities. And so racial profiling could be thought of as a naturalist practice at times where what people are doing is they're reading bodies for biological signs that they think will give them a shortcut to understanding how dangerous the person is. Hmm. Well, I, I think that connects enough dots to see that, that how that actually plays out is things like George Floyd gets asphyxiated on the sidewalk, and the chances of that happening to a white body are extremely low to none because it's not bodies aren't read the same way. They're not perceived the same way. They're not interpreted the same way. Yeah, that's very good. Thank you. That is a very interesting, very interesting connection between the way uh, that people think of data or ideals as impersonality, uh, colorblindness, the blindness of justice, this kind of narrative uh, that people sometimes give to even the history of America or, or nationalism or ideals that we don't want to look at the specifics. We're not talking about race. We're not talking about historical oppression. We're talking about, well, you know, maybe... You couldn't access those, those ideals of freedom and justice before, but uh, all I want now is for everyone to have the same treatment. So we'll just go to these statistics. But it doesn't actually play out that way. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's a great point because I think part of what's going on there is the the complex relationship between naturalism and ethics. Mm -hmm. I mean, as a, as a hermeneuticist, what I would say is going on there is a kind of muting. Yeah a silencing of the subjects and the cultures that they're involved in. And yeah, data can kind of, it looks like it's making a transparent description of the world, but it can actually be obfuscating in a way that we don't recognize, yeah. you know? It can be actually covering over the phenomenon and not disclosing it, even though it looks like what's happening is simply a description. Um, and and that, that has a very complicated ethical relationship when we sort of silence the cultural um, world that certain things are happening within. Yeah, that's good. I, I this connects to a question I have here about uh, nationalism. I've been working on a piece uh, myself on Charles Taylor and nationalism, which um, deals with race uh, uh, in this piece. But what I'm curious about is, um, you know, he views Taylor describes nationalism as an expression of the modern interest in authenticity. Um, so following um, a particular path for the nation and not someone else's, it's the truest ethos of that national self. And uh, when I was reading this, I, I also read your article, uh, Whose Nation, Which Communities, the Fault Lines in the New Christian Nationalism. And I understand you to be taking a similar understanding of nationalism as a kind of authenticity, but that you also lay out two ways this authenticity can be taken. Um, Ethno-nationalism 
where the sense of national identity is tied to ethnicity, which leads to racism and xenophobia and so on, and civic nationalism, which ties to the institutions of a country rather than to the ethnicity of the country or to the ideals even of a country, uh, political freedom, uh, justice, and so on. But um, as we've been talking about, I suspect that often when people claim to be or even think that they are, describe themselves as being nationalistic in the civic sense, it often is a sort of naturalistic explanation for being um, nationalistic in the ethno-nationalistic sense, which is what I think you might be suggesting in this piece. Is that a fair description of your argument, this drift into ethno-nationalism? And if so, why do you think this happens? Yeah, and I should mention that that piece that you mentioned is uh, is written with David Albertson, uh, who I frequently collaborate mm. with, who's at the University of, of Southern California and is an excellent um, theologian and scholar of religion. And so I'm drawing off work that, that we did together. Yeah. Taylor is very important to our argument there. And, and the point you make that nationalism arises out of ethics of authenticity and the notion that there is an authentic cultural way to be a self that is particular to an individual or a group. Already there, the, we have a tension within nationalist ideology because frequently in many varieties of nationalism, the claim is that nationalism is sort of primordial and goes back to, to prehistory, mm. that people are divided into these groups. But if nationalist politics actually involves this modern ethical turn toward authenticity, that already challenges many, many forms of nationalism on their own terms. I mean, ethno-nationalists, for instance, crude ethno-nationalists tend to think that either something like the, the biological theories of race that I was criticizing earlier are true, or that, that a spiritual kind of history takes hold mm -hmm. and that an ethnos is formed across, you know, centuries. Right. Uh, it, in 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 the black forest or whatever yeah. it is you know the, in the alps or you know that like a people is forged by a geography and an experience etc cetera, etc cetera. right um and so already there we have a kind of philosophical problem or tension within at least ethno-nationalist understandings um political theorists tend to say that the big alternative form of nationalism is is what you mentioned civic nationalism which is an affirmation of institutions or principles rather than a thick sort of ethnicity. But David and I argue that, um, that in practice, civic nationalism can be very unstable. I mean, for myself, I prefer the term patriotism, mm -hmm. which I would define as citizen identification with uh, certain institutions and political principles. And a lot of people will say, well, that's just civic nationalism. But the issue I have with civic nationalism is that it tends to be a culture promulgated by a state. I think the sort of naive view of nationalism is that nations precede states. Right, right, right. But right. there's actually a very complicated relationship between nations and states. Um, if you think of like, what is the cultural difference between Colombia, Venezuela, and Ecuador? And uh, I mean, there was movements in Latin America for a kind of pan-Latin Americanism. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, states are involved in... Taylor notes this, actually, that states require high amounts of sacrifice in the modern world. They require 
um, high amounts of tax. They require uh, service in the form of civic service, but also maybe in the form of military sacrifice. So if you like, blood and money yeah. are both needed by modern states. And one way that states can can uh, create legitimacy is through a nationalist culture. Mm -hmm. They establish things like an official grammar, a school system that imposes it on local vernaculars. They establish certain cultural practices like eating hot dogs on the 4th of July. <laughs> yeah. If you eat tacos on the 4th of July, you're not really American. So my problem with nationalism is what I, what I see as a sort of unstable relationship with the state's tendency to try to, to foment monocultures that run afoul of locality. I mean, if you think of like the borderlands of California, where I am, or like Texas, New Mexico, there are people who were there before the border moved. You know, they have longer roots there than the establishment of American statehood. Right. And oftentimes, um, civic nationalism can drift unknowingly into an ethnic nationalism because it's very difficult uh, to respect the pluralism of cultures that can feed into a patriotic affirmation. Right. And it can become the case that you think, say, only Christians can or only good hot dog eaters can or, you know, vegetarians certainly can't. Or, you know, so it, yes. turns, <laughs> it, it actually spells out oftentimes um, civic nationalism. My worry is that oftentimes civic nationalism turns into state promulgated monoculture that in effect is a, a sort of softer but still existent ethno-nationalism where certain cultural practices are prized over others. Yeah. Um, yeah. That makes sense. And then and this is often, um, as Taylor points out in the secular age, it's often like warranted too by religion, by the, the institutions, the ideals, the monoculture that gets associated with them, the story, the origin story, everything about this narrative of statehood and national identity um, is warranted by God's design. This um, civilizational superiority uh, that we can feel, especially, or that historically the U.S. and Britain have felt is uh, derived from a sense that God was in the principles of the very design. So that all becomes one thing, um, going to church on Sunday, eating the hot dogs, keeping disorder from the streets and so on can be sort of a cultural wholeness, right? That's an excellent observation. And that kind of bundling is one of the fastest and subtlest ways in which um, I think authentic uh, religious practice gets co-opted by state monoculture. You know, yeah. they, they get bundled together without almost even thinking of it right. into a kind of ethnic identity of, like you said, you know, it's it's not just the hot dog eating. It, it is, I, I go to church on Sunday, or maybe I just say I go to church on Sunday and, it's, <laughs> right. and all good people go to church on Sundays, but in fact, <laughs> I've stopped going to church on Sunday, but it becomes a kind of marker of, of, um, of citizenships, uh, of citizen status, right? Yeah. Um, and and so I think you're absolutely right that th this is this is another way. The concern is that a bundling goes on, um, and and in that sense, I think this is one of the reasons that there's the very widespread view amongst social scientists and historians that nationalism is very difficult to categorize uh, as different than religion, because mm. it has a lot of the features of it. It has ritual right. practices. 
it has often uh, a stated theology and creedal claims and so on. And so frequently nationalism also devolves into a kind of replacement uh, theology and religion. Yeah, yeah, I love that. American civil religion, as as religion scholars have called it, and um, a form of Christianity in most cases. Um, but um, I was interested in the way this happened with the, uh, Joe Biden's acceptance speech with him uh, ending with on, on Eagle's wings, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> was Catholic very interesting. Twitter, Catholic Twitter was a flutter with that. One. It was, it really was. <laughs> and I thought it was rather astonishing because yeah. I can't think of another presidential speech that used Christian imagery that was so specifically Catholic imagery to do this civic religion, uh, heavy lifting like he, like he did. Of course, I haven't really studied JFK's speeches, but mm. I know that JFK was downplaying his Catholicism a bit mm-hmm. more. <laughs> and uh, that, that particular song is uh, not ecumenical mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of actual practice. But anyway, that was very interesting. Um, speaking of Catholicism in the public square, um, you published in October a piece in Commonweal called uh, Not Catholic Enough, The Integralism of Adrian Vermeule. And you argue that Vermeule, who is this Harvard law professor and Catholic convert, and is the head of a certain form of integralism, which is a uh, a major movement among Catholic intellectuals uh, beyond Vermeule, but uh, he's a big proponent of it. And you argue that it's at odds with Catholic social teaching, stemming from Vatican II and Pope Benedict XVI, among others, and point out that it draws more on the Nazi Carl Schmitt's critique of liberalism than on Christian ethics. Could you say, in which a, I, he was an, a Nazi, a literal member of the Nazi party. I don't say this as a critique yeah. of him. Enthusiastic, but, enthusiastically. <laughs> it's just yeah. a, this is just a description, in fact. Yeah, just a description. Um, <laughs> could you say more about integralism as a movement uh, and then Vermeule's form and why you find it? so at odds with the church with church teaching yeah integralism is very weird isn't it i mean it's kind of hard to grasp i think a fair description of it in the broadest sense is a a mostly um resurgent form of, of catholic politics and on the right today in the united states that assumes that you need to subordinate political authority so in in our own cultural moment the state to spiritual authority mm-hmm. and so for catholics that would be the church now at that level you can imagine any number of politics in which you subordinate political authority the state to spiritual authority the church and you could play with that i mean you could imagine a liberal integralist saying well the church is making the argument that the church is affirmed liberalism of some kind and that to integrate uh the the political state and spiritual authority actually means to create a liberal regime but that's not the direction that integralism is ever taken really at this moment it's almost always associated with post-liberalism or anti-liberalism of various kinds and vermule if you like is one way to try to create an, uh, a post-liberal and anti-liberal integralism and he does so by drawing as you say uh, very heavily on on the on the legal theorist Carl Schmitt and his notions of an unbounded executive and a crisis of liberalism. I mean, Vermeule's a, 
is a has written for so long and he's written so much that it's it's difficult to give a fair sort of thumbnail sketch of what he's up to right before he converted to catholicism very visibly a few years back his work was mostly on um a sort of legal theory of the state and uh, a defense of greatly amplified executive power of the, of the american presidency of what he called an unbounded executive and he tended to argue that you know people who worried that an unbounded executive would lead to tyranny weren't sufficiently taking into account existent checks on executive power hmm. and the way he argued that was by using rational choice theory which we've already discussed at length and uh, vermeule was at chicago for a while and he took on board this kind of economistic rational choice way of thinking so you could one way to think of vermeule one way that i think of vermeule initially is as an attempt to synthesize and this is where he's very different than carl schmidt try to synthesize carl schmidt's notion of an unbounded executive and a crisis of liberalism with chicago school economistic rational choice thinking mm -hmm. um, if you go scouring vermeule's books which i've done for the arguments as to why the heck you should ever sign up to an unbounded executive the the main justifications he's given in his academic books to date are rational choice reasons that um, the state should be conceived of as comprised of this sort of actors and that that both means that an executive is more efficient than other forms of government but also that you don't have to fear the executive becoming a tyrant because they're in certain game-like scenarios that put checks on them and by the way i find some of the passages where vermeule is arguing in the early 2000s that uh, uh unbounded executive will have natural checks on them due to rational reasons extremely ironic funny reading in light of trumpism to think that like <laughs> all these rational actors are going to be checking each other but anyway vermeule early on was what he was basically doing was providing a very indirect defense of the amplification of executive power in the face of terrorism and so he wrote some books defending uh, in principle, the right of the executive to use torture. It's subtle. He never came out and said they should torture. He just said right. an executive ought to be able to make the call on whether or not you torture people. Right. Um, after he converted, the argument changed significantly. It wasn't so much about um, the liberal state facing external enemies like Islam or the problems of globalization and needing a really efficient executive that supposedly the legislature couldn't keep up with the times and globalization. Instead, it was about a crisis of liberalism itself and the need to, to conduct what he called integration from within. So in his most recent writings, which are mostly blogs and kind of popular articles, he claims that liberalism is a kind of festival of reason that is unstable and morally depraved. And mm -hmm. so what you need in order to uh, secure the common good is an integration from within where Catholics assume high posts within government and um, you basically have executive and administrative state takeover of a liberal democracy, shaping it morally in the direction of the church's uh, teachings. Mm -hmm. And so you have a kind of um, a kind of revolution, if you like, from within. A lot of people have, I think, rightly uh, pointed out that this is theocratic, but it gets pretty complicated and contested, you know, what the status of this this political regime is, what morals is it 
is it legislating on people exactly? Um, right. My problems with it are multiple, and I go into them in depth in the article, but I think that Catholic theology is a form of, of humanism, and, mm-hmm. and that uh, modern documents from the church uh, involve an affirmation of, if you like, human rights, and that's the language that most modern uh, church documents use. That doesn't mean the understanding of rights has to be full stop liberal. But I do think it puts major boundaries on an unbounded executive. And so I think that there's a logical incompatibility between Vermeule's um, Schmidian notion of an unbounded executive and the church's notion of human dignity as putting an absolute limit. And if you don't think there's any upshot to that, all I can say is read what Vermeule says about torture during 9-11 and read what Pope Benedict says, because Pope Benedict is saying (laughs) it's absolutely unacceptable to torture people. And Vermeer right. is writing book-length treaties saying, you know what, an executive should have that on the table if need be in the face of terrorism. And yeah. so th- there's there's a very real-world effect to this. I also think more quickly that methodologically, the, uh, the, the, the economistic uh, models that Vermeule is using haven't been decentered in the way I was talking about earlier. And so he's using them illegitimately, and they're sliding into a kind of anthropological description of the state and that economistic form of thinking he picked up at the university of Chicago is not philosophically compatible with the church's uh, mm-hmm. philosophical anthropology. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely see that. We're, we've been working through the compendium of social doctrine in my class. I'm teaching this fall and um, it's difficult to square the church teaching, which sort of, emphatically and resolutely and over and over returns the issue of individual human dignity and does use the language of rights. Um, and the subs- even the, um, of course, solidarity with people, but also subsidiarity. I mean, that's, um, which is tended to be more of a, mm-hmm. uh, a conservative, if you're going to push local, local versus um, national solutions to thing in America, that's kind of seen as a, conservative position but even that is um anti-unbounded executive yeah and uh, absolutely and and actually you can push it the other direction too which is subsidiarity holds that a, a good that can only be resolved by a certain level of governance should be pushed up to the level of governance appropriate to but if not then it should be pushed down the ladder to more to to a more locally bounded level but right. you can push that in the other direction to say if there's a global crisis of the commons that cannot be resolved at, at the local level even of, of of a national government, then in fact Catholic, Catholic subsidiarity holds that you should have some kind of global cooperation on the commons. And so yeah. climate change, for instance, could there are grounds. I think there's a lot of philosophical space to argue that the executive is not only bounded at locality but also at the level of the global, which most post-liberals have taken a stance of anti-globalism and anti-global cooperation on government. And so I think there's actually trouble from the other direction too, which is um, the church's logic of the defense of levels of government seems to imply if you have a global crisis that you should have some kind of global governance. Now, maybe that's um, some form of like robust federative internationalism. I'm not saying it's world government per se, though I don't think Catholic theology actually fully crosses that out either. 
So no, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't seem to. Um, there's the whole section in the compendium um, on the UN, which it treats with a great deal of positive. <laughs> and uh, this mm-hmm. this brings up this this nationalism again. And you were, you were critiquing in this in this article um, with David Albert this nationalism that's what was embraced explicitly by a group of Catholic intellectuals, including some integralist, uh, in a manifesto on first things, which you, and they, they talked about this, the new nationalism, uh, and uh, not wanting to go back to pure Reagan market economic Republican style conservatism, but doing something new, um, afforded by the new moment of the Trump presidency, even though some of them weren't uh, Trump supporters. And you critique this new nationalism, um, and you see it not as like a repudiation of their entire uh, manifesto. You see them looking at some of the problems with liberalism and then taking a step down the same kind of a path in a different way. Is that is that a fair understanding of what you're doing? Yeah. Yeah, I think that uh, basically, to work dialectically through their position, I think they're right that we need new solidarities. I think they're right that sort of Reagan fusionist um, policy led to massive unintended consequences that have been very damaging. And insofar as they're looking to repair solidarities in the face of what I think of as the market polis mm-hmm. and this sort of um, double H effect in which society takes on all these attributes of homo economicus. Uh, in that sense, I want to give a partial affirmation of of their their dissatisfaction. But where I think they've gotten really badly wrong is that nationalism is a defective solidarity on Catholic terms. Uh, in part for the reasons we were discussing earlier about the relationship between national culture and states and the tendency to um, elide and violate and and even oppressively exclude locality and the multiculturalism of locality from from politics, but also because there tends to be in nationalist uh, forms of solidarity um, a kind of... Uh, de facto border limit that is basically incompatible with the Gospels, as I understand them. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's an accident that if you look at the new nationalists, they have very anemic, if not non-existent, uh, criticisms of the treatment of Catholic migrant kids separated at the border. Why are those people invisible? I mean, if you were looking through the eyes of the church, you'd have double reason with these yeah. kids from... <laughs> Central America to have your solidarity come down, if you like, even inside the church, which is not the Gospels yet, per se. But these are Catholic kids, many of them coming with rosaries over the border and whatnot. Why are they invisible? Why don't they count as much in, in, in solidarities? And I think that nationalism can very subtly and profoundly usurp um, the church's call for radical, radical solidarity uh, without borders. Now, what does that mean politically? Can you have a polity with practical limits on it and so on? Yes, I think you can. Um, but you need to build forms of solidarity that don't uh, get spellbound by these kind of homogenizing um, state, state-promulgated ethno-nationalist um, effects. Yeah. And if you don't do that, then you're very likely to lose the Gospels, even as you think you're propounding them. You're you, I, I, I do think that this is pl- a place where people like Chad Pecknold, 
Patrick Deneen um, and sort of uh, the, the new nationalist uh, front have ended up is essentially in a very awkward apologetics uh, for a particular ethnic um, conception of, of, the, of the polity. And so where Catholics should really be going is in the direction of forms of solidarity that are what I was discussing earlier is patriotic, but that open up onto larger global solidarities. That shouldn't be a threat to Catholics. Mm-hmm. That should be, yes, there are bad globalisms. That's another place I'd agree with the new nationalists. I do wish they sort of sat longer with the fact that Reaganism was bad, which <laughs> they were all sort of on the side of Reaganism for decades on their front porches and sort of took a moment to listen to the secular left that whatever you you might see as its defects was saying it was bad all along. Yeah. So maybe we have something to learn from these people um, who were saying it was bad all along. Right. Instead of just rushing toward, um, rushing toward a sort of easy similar party identification that they've held their entire lives, uh, which I find very, um, very disturbing. Uh, lack of humility to not learn because you're too, um, you're too attached. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, Jason. This has been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate the time you've taken to talk to us about all these matters. Thanks so much, Charles. This is a particularly good podcast. Particularly good, not particularly good. <laughs> you can't say it every time. It's a name, not a claim. 